So one of my hopes for this retreat is that you become curious or interested. You become, in a certain way, reflexively aware, focused on what is sati. What is this collection of mental factors that come into play when we're attentive, when we engage our attentional faculties? Myself, I'm very fond of the word attentive um, because for me it reminds me of the word attend and attend is a kind of a sweet word. It's kind of like you attend to someone if you care for them. So we attend to ourselves with attention. We attend to ourselves to discover what it is, this process of attention. And why is it that it's emphasized so much in Buddhism? In some ways it's given a central role in our capacity to become free, to be liberated. So the word that we most commonly, uh, the Pali word for what we commonly refer to as mindfulness is sati. And uh, the person who first translated it as mindfulness was an English gentleman from the Victorian times who was borrowing a word which had religious associations or feelings from the King's James Bible. So it was kind of a religious term and maybe I think he recognized its tremendous importance in Buddhism and wanted to give it some kind of association with something that was of religious meaning, in, in, at least in that time in England. And that uh, choice is basically stuck, and that's what's become the most common translation now. However, uh, he, I, it seems like he wasn't completely settled on this translation, because uh, some years later, uh, he was involved in creating the the, the Pali Tech Society Dictionary, which is still somehow the most definitive dictionary of Pali terms into English. <coughs> and there, uh, he provides some different translations for sati. One of them is wakefulness of mind. And now, I don't, maybe there's a different feeling or a different sense or different pointing when we say wakefulness, wakefulness of mind instead of mindfulness. Another term he used is, uh, or a phrase he used to define, I guess, in English, sati, was lucidity of mind. Lucidity of mind. So what in the world is lucidity of mind? And in more recent times, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's translated many of these books, 
given a lot of thought to what the meaning of words and care and attention to it. In one somewhat scholarly writing, he translates sati as lucid awareness. The lucid awareness. I think you get a different feeling about what sati might be with words like wakefulness and lucidity of mind, lucid awareness, than what has now evolved in the last couple of decades in the West when uh, people use the word mindfulness. And uh, in fact, I kind of uh, suspect that if we take the modern translations, modern meanings of mindfulness, for uh, it doesn't really apply to how the Buddha talked about sati. It actually applies to something different he talked about. So it's, but it, was, it wasn't what he meant as sati. And it's interesting to, th to kind of look more deeply at how the Buddha uses sati because it might point us to investigate, to look into this amazing capacity of being conscious, of being aware, being attentive, to know what's happening, to notice, to, to know that you know, to know that you're conscious, to know you're aware. It's an amazing thing that we have going. Yesterday I talked about the kind of, I guess, biblical story that humans are made from mud and clay and then God breathed consciousness or breathed life into it. I think that if we were to transform that story into a Buddhist version, yes, we're made from clay and the materials of the world. And, um, but it isn't God who breathes consciousness, life into anything, but it's us. We do it for ourselves. It's a world of difference to be aware of something with lucidity, be aware of things clearly. We kind of give things life when we're really there and present for something. And we give kind of a death if we shut down or close off or wall off parts of our life and they go back into the darkness. That it's the touch of sati, the touch of awareness, is a very special thing. I, would, I think that anything that sati touches, it's, you know, it's, uh, you have to find out for yourself, but there's some, you know, I, recently I thought it's kind of like the Midas touch. You know, it's something quite special there, the touch of sati or the, to be. So what is it? So one of the ideas of, if you look at the suttas, is that sati is a faculty of mind. So it's a capacity of the mind, a faculty. And uh, as such, it's not exactly an activity of the mind. And I liken it to faith. Faith is also a, a faculty of mind. Both those are two of the five faculties we talk about. And with faith, 
we don't do faith, you know, let's faith up, you know, get your faith going, please. You know, uh, you can touch into your faith, you can inspire your faith, faith can be inspired in you, but you can't just kind of like go in there and wring it out and, you know, insist that it be there, you know. I think faith is more like a, it's more like a feeling more or a sense of confidence or inspiration as a faculty than an activity that we do, something like that. So as a faculty, sati is a little bit similar to that because if you look and see how the word sati is used by the Buddha, the Buddha never, ever says, do sati. Now we're going to be satiing. It, it, it would be like strange in Pali to say satiing as it would be to say mindfulnessing. I wouldn't get away with that in, in English. Let's do some mindfulnessing. The um, uh, uh, sati is not a verb, it's a noun. It's a, and as such, uh, it's associated with other verbs. And you get a little bit of sense of what sati might be like when you see what verbs the Buddha associated with sati. Since he doesn't say do sati, so one uh, can be endowed with sati, one can possess sati, one can have purity of sati. And then more commonly he talks about that one can abide in sati and one can establish sati. And all, all those words, they're, they're pointing to a thing kind of, like a noun, a capacity which is established, that we rest in, that is that we have kind of within us rather than an activity that we do. So the English word that I think maybe is one of the best translations for sati, uh, as inadequate as it might seem, because it's a little bit vague, not everyone has a clear idea of what it is, but that is awareness. Because awareness is something that you can abide in, dwell in. It's something one has, one possesses in a certain way. Maybe the English word possess is not the right translation, but one has. One can be endowed with awareness. One can have purity of awareness. One can establish awareness. And so to establish awareness, to, you know, so it's something we already have, we possess it, and it's something we can rest in or abide in. And some of you, I'm sure, have had that experience in ordinary life, maybe fleetingly, but sometime when all the factors of your life just came together nicely. Maybe things are basically stress-free and things are kind of okay and the weather is good and 
the demands of your life are not kind of hounding you. And maybe you've taken a, a nice nap and you've had enough to eat. You're satis very satisfied and relaxed. And you just kind of sit there or lay there in bed looking at the ceiling or sit looking out at the garden or whatever, the park. And it just, um, you know, you, you don't have to work at being aware. You're not really thinking about other times and places, but you just kind of like look around and you're not, you're not, you're not actually looking at anything, but you're kind of there seeing. We have the capacity to see, we have the faculty to see. We can allow ourselves to see. We can, um, uh, you know, have a purity of seeing, I guess. We can establish just seeing. But we don't have to be looking. The difference is that looking is intentional. There's a little bit of work involved in looking. Someone says, look over there, and you kind of, you do something to look and you study, what's, what's that over there? But if you're sitting on the park bench, think content and happy and nothing needs to happen, and you're not using your eyes actively, but seeing happens. And it can be very peaceful and relaxed. So, in that sense, mindfulness is a faculty. And it's a very important faculty. And it's the faculty that when developed and cultivated, strengthened, made strong, that uh, it brings about a tremendous amount of benefit, to quote the Buddha. There's many benefits from it. And not least of which is it's something about this lucid awareness, open awareness, the strong established awareness, which begins to um, soften, loosen the ways in which the heart, the mind, is tight, constricted. It allows something inside of us to begin to thaw, to melt, to relax, to open. All the way and rest. Liberation through non-clinging. It's a powerful thing, this thing of awareness, whatever it might be. So the um, we don't do awareing. We allow awareness. We develop and strengthen the capacity. And um, and it's not kind of ordinary awareness because we're always aware. But there's a kind of uh, awareness where, you know, you can you can go on you know rush hour traffic and you're in a hurry and you're zipping in and out of the cars and. You know, there's a lot to pay attention to, and and you know you have to keep all your senses aware and awake and pay attention, and but it's not relaxing. It doesn't lend itself to a kind of this uh, this uh, kind of 
open, relaxed kind of awareness where you're aware you're aware, you know you're aware, you're kind of resting in awareness, you're dwelling in awareness. We're too busy kind of uh, avoiding the police you know, or something, you know. We're too, you know, busy or being upset at the other drivers or whatever it might be. So we have that capacity to be aware, but for it to become lucid, to become wakeful, is more the task. So, um, so what's interesting is that in the discourse, it's something most of you know, the, usually translated into English as the four foundations of mindfulness. It's like, this, you know, in our kind of scene, the Vipassana scene, it's the definitive discourse of the Buddha on mindfulness practice. The Buddha says almost nothing about mindfulness in this text. It's virtually, ap and it's there, the word is there, but it's not there as an instruction of what to do. If you read there to say, what, what should I do when I'm mindful? It just doesn't say anything about it. The reason for that is what the exercises are in the Satipatthana Sutta are particular activities and practices we can do that bring forth or establish awareness so that awareness becomes lucid, clear, alert, reflexive awareness. The, the kind of sati that we're looking to develop in the Satipatthana Sutta is called in that sutta pati sati. And the word pati means reflexive. So kind of like, you know, reflexive meaning that one knows one is aware. And um, so it's, the text is about ways, practices, that establish this lucid awareness. And it involves things like observing, taking the time to really look carefully at your experience. Practicing sampajana, which is clear comprehension, the clear recognition of what's there. You can really recognize, oh, there's that, there's that, this is what's going on. So I'm sitting here, I feel, oh, there's a cool tingling and moving of my hairs on my arm from that air conditioner. So a clear recognition of it. And the, I feel the movement of that wind, that different places in my body, my chest, as it kind of blows. It's a clear recognition. I'm aware. It's nice to be aware and feel that. It's kind of refreshing. But I also recognize the sensations, the feelings, the movement, the coming and going of it. It's a recognition. And I think that it's the way that mindfulness is taught in modern English-speaking world nowadays what they're teaching from the Buddha's language is clear comprehension. But they call it mindfulness, they call it sati. It's a related practice, it's a practice that leads to, to developing this awareness, but it's not sati. It's, it's often it's clear comprehension, it's very useful to do. 
So in the Satipatthana Sutta, it lays out a whole bunch of different, 13 in total, exercises, for ways of establishing, ways of developing, ways of heightening our capacity to be here with clear, open awareness. And what's interesting about this Satipatthana Sutta and gathering together 13 different exercises, it's, it's taking a variety of different exercises, practices from the suttas, and unifying them together into one place. This practice of unification. And unification is a very important part of cultivating lucid awareness. Because lucid awareness can be there when we're not at cross-purposes with ourselves. We're not uh, in conflict with ourselves, because then when we're not caught up in wars and aversions and greeds and desires and regrets and, you know, full of desires of wanting something or getting something or lost in the past. There's all these ways in which we kind of end up breaking ourselves into pieces, into fragments. Some people live very, very fragmented lives. In the extreme version of it, people are cut off from themselves. Some people don't know what they're feeling. Some people stop themselves from feeling who they are. Some people are cut off from their minds and what goes on, their intentions and what drives them. Some people are cut off from their body. Some people are not cut off, but they're just so scattered with so many desires, intentions, thoughts, feelings. You know, they you know, just kind of a whirlwind and different activities and stuff. And so there might be, you know, almost a centrifugal force sometimes in the mind in all kinds of different directions. And I think some of you, I think, I guess all of you, on this first day of the retreat, have felt some of that. Because I suspect some of you tried to be here, present and mindful, and, you know, your mind had other ideas. And it kept spinning off and spinning off, and, you know, and luckily they rang the bell, and then you woke up, oh, I'm here. The, um, you know, and so you're kind of, you know, there's a typical force out into the world of thoughts and imagination and conversations and fantasy and whatever it might be. So there's something about the practices in the uh, mindfulness, practices that lead to a strong lucid awareness, which begins to unify us so that all the di different parts of us are in harmony gathered together, collected, here, present, in a unified way. And this idea of unification is, uh, you've seen more clearly, in the second sutta that the Buddha taught on mindfulness, which is the Anapanasati Sutta, the discourse that we'll use for the instructions for this retreat. And it, uh, there's two parts to this discourse. The first part is laying the scene, describing the, the, the stage in which the Buddha is giving his teachings. And it's one of the longest kind of laying the stage of any sutta in the, in the collection. It's a full moon night in the forest. 
a beautiful full moon. It's still quiet in the forest. It's uh, probably around September or so time in northern India. And the Buddha is there. It's near the end, or the, it's near the end of the rains retreat. Maybe it's at the end of it. Three months when monks come together, unify from all the different places they're wandering around, they gather together. And it describes that over in that little grove of trees, there's Ananda with 10 disciples, 10 students, new monks. And over there's Anuroda, another disciple of the Buddha, with 20. Over there is Sariputta with 30. Over there is so-and-so with 40. And if you add up all the numbers, that there's, a, there's over 200 monastics gathered together, and the Buddha calls them together, and he says, very appreciatively, I am very satisfied with your practice, how well it's going. This is, this is great, what ta your practice, practicing well, I'm happy with how it's developed for you. In kind of a paraphrase, even though the rains are come to an end now, stay for another month. Keep practicing. And, um, and so they do. And then at the next full moon, they all gather together and and the Buddha says, I'm pleased and satisfied with your practice. There are monastics here who have all different stages of awakening. There are monastics here who have cultivated deeply loving kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity. There are monastics here who have cultivated the four foundations of mindfulness. He goes through all these things they cultivated and then he ends by saying, and there's monastics here who are practicing uh, mindfulness of breathing, awareness of breathing. So we have this scene where the, the major disciples of the Buddha have come together in harmony, in peaceful setting. They're unified as a community. Different disciples are all together. They're unified around the Buddha, the symbol of awakening, listening to him. And all these, they're all doing different practices, all which the Buddha appreciates and values. And so he kind of, in his, in his appreciation of his validating or unifying them all together. So this idea of unifying. And then in this wonderful setting, he then gives the instructions for mindfulness of breathing awareness of breathing, sati of breathing. Actually, the uh, uh, awareness of breathing in and breathing out. And he says, a person goes to a place in the forest at the foot of a tree in an empty hut, sits cross-legged with the body erect. and establishes awareness to the four, 
or Thomas Rice Davids in his dictionary translated as establishes wakefulness all around. Okay, all around. I like this idea of 360 degree, 360 degree awareness. Establishes it. And then mindfully breathes in, mindfully breathes out. Mindfulness is not the activity one does, it's an adjective of how one, for how one is breathing. One breathes with mindfulness, or one breathes within mindfulness, or one breathes to mindfulness, or one breathes mindfully. And then he begins describing 16 steps for how to develop mindfulness. And those 16 are divided into four groups. In English, they're called tetrads, four tetrads. And this theme of unification, later in the sutta, he says that each of these tetrad corresponds to one of the foundations of mindfulness. So these, these different practices come together. They're kind of like different perspectives on the same unfolding and development of awareness. As awareness gets stronger and stronger within one, there's different perspectives to describe what happens to a person. You can describe it from the point of view of developing stronger and stronger mindfulness of breathing. One can understand it from the point of view of developing these four foundations, these four areas of where mindfulness is established. So he describes these four tetrads. What's interesting about each tetrad is that the fourth step in each tetrad is some variation of letting go. In the first two tetrads, it's about relaxing. The, you know, the usual English translation is uh, tranquilize, but I don't know if, you know, I can give you a tranquilizer. <laughs> the, um, and so the uh, first tetrad begins with just becoming familiar with your breathing. Perhaps, at least that's what inspired the instructions I gave this morning. The way it's stated, it says when, when one breathes in a short breath, one knows it's a short breath. When one breathes out a short breath, one knows it's a short out breath. When one breathes in a long breath, one knows it's a long breath, in breath. When one breathes out a long breath, one knows it's a long exhale. It's just very simple. It's so simple that I think some people can't believe it. You know, like, we're supposed to do something, we're supposed to attain something, we make something happen. Uh, there must be something more to this. But it's, it's just, just see it clearly, tune in, adjust the lens so you can see clearly and start recognizing what this experience of breathing is like. It doesn't matter if it's short or long, it doesn't matter if it's controlled breath breathing or free breathing, it doesn't matter if it's 
uncomfortable or comfortable. That's not the point. The point is that we use the way we're breathing, the experience of breathing, as a way of establishing, cultivating, evoking, developing our capacity to be aware. Yesterday I talked about there's two things, is what we know and the knowing of it. And we're just using kind of just a tool for developing that capacity to know. The breathing is a tool or the instrument for it. And so it doesn't really matter if it's comfortable or uncomfortable, shallow or deep. It might matter to you because some of them, some, way, some ways are more pleasant than other ways. But for the purposes of developing awareness, it just, it, we're just using that as a way of kind of being here. And, uh, and so we're relaxing, so, so we're getting to know, we're feeling, being present, training the mind to be established in the present moment, coming back and doing it over and over again, establishing the mind in the, the mind, the wakeful mind, the lucid mind, the aware mind in the present. The mind comes off, we reestablish it. Goes off, reestablish it. Goes off, open to it again. Goes off, allow yourself to be aware again. Goes off, establish your awareness so you can invite back your breathing into it. And um, we do this over and over again, just, you know, and slowly, slowly, the, the mind that drifts off, the mind that's preoccupied, the energy of that dissipates. Because attention is a little bit like food. And it feeds whatever, wherever it goes into. So if your attention goes into and maybe gets lost into fantasy, distractions, you're actually feeding that capacity of the mind. If you direct your attention to something more useful, like the breathing, you're feeding that attention to breathing. And you're now beginning to, you know, take the fuel away from your distracted thoughts. And it's a process. It takes a while. Keep coming back and take this wonderful food of attention and kind of place it where it's important, where you want to feed and develop and let grow. So we're doing here with the breathing. So the first two steps of the of Anapanasati has to do with just recognizing what the breath is like. The next step, the third step, is to um, feel, as you do this, as you're feeling your breathing, being with your breathing, and s open up and feel the whole body as you sit here. And that's often happens anyway, because as people start getting settled and focused in the present moment, their body tends to become more present. The idea is to start feeling your body, and the instructions are to experience your whole body. As you start feeling your body more, you might from time to time notice that there's some tension in your body, some ways in which you're held. And um, that can be pretty big holdings and tension, and they can be very, very, very subtle little holdings in the micro muscles that kind of there. 
And um, so the, the third, the fourth step, the last step, is after you've experienced your whole body sitting there, is relax the body. Tranquilize the body, calm the body. Soften the tension in your body. What a great thing to do. Don't slump. <laughs> That's not quite the same as relaxing. It's more like settling straight down. I once read a study a long, long time ago, 40 years ago, where I guess some physiologists studied what postures that human beings can be in that allowed for the deepest relaxation. And what they discovered was that two, there were two postures that, that allowed the deepest physiological, physical, muscular relaxation. Uh, one was the in yoga, the corpse posture, just like completely on your back. And the other is uh, sitting upright, cross-legged. And they probably didn't study the people in the chair, but that's probably, I hope it's third best. <laughs> and um, you know, it's uh, there's something about sitting upright that allows some kind of deeper relaxation of muscles that's actually harder to relax if we slump. So there's something very special about this posture. So the Buddha said, relax. This is a protection from excessive striving in practice. It's a protection from uh, you know, bearing down or you know, enduring in some tight and forceful way. The second tetrad does the same thing with the mind, where it ends with relaxing the mind. The third tetrad ends with liberating the mind. And the fourth tetrad ends with a wonderful thing called relinquishment. And all four of these are, are in the family of letting go, or relaxing, or something. So this is kind of that, that's kind of the direction the practice is going. Step by step in different ways, we learn or, let, or allow for the body to relax, the mind to relax, the mind to become freer, and to relinquish. Just open, kind of open the hand and relinquish and let go. The image that I like for this relinquishment is uh, maybe you're holding tenderly a bird in your hand and you relinquish it, you let go of it, and it flies off. Relinquish your mind. Wouldn't that be great? Mind flies off. <laughs> the Buddha whenever he talked about what meditation practice he himself did, he said he did mindfulness of breathing. It's probably, you know, one of the clearest instructions the Buddha gives for practices that he did. 
He said he did mindfulness of breathing before he was enlightened. And he did mindfulness of breathing afterwards. And I love this idea that before and after it's the same practice. Some of you will be disappointed. <laughs> you, you know, you hope you'd be done with this stuff. I too, the Buddha said, before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, not fully enlightened, I generally dwelt in this dwelling. Which dwelling? That concentration by mindfulness of breathing. The concentration of mindfulness of breathing. Anapana, breathing in and out. Sati, usually we know it as mindfulness. Samadhi, anapana, anapana sati, samadhi. That nice, this unification coming together. And somehow in the recent centuries, there's been a little bit of a war or kind of a, a divide between sati and samadhi. But everything is unified in the practice of the Buddha. So here, samadhi, sati samadhi. Um, so he says, I generally dwelt in this dwelling. While I generally dwelt in this dwelling, neither my body nor my eyes became fatigued. Isn't that great? My body and eyes didn't become fatigued. There's something about breathing, breathing in the body, breathing, being present in your body with your breathing, relaxing, allowing it to kind of massage us, allowing it to work us, allow it to, uh, you know, that it's hard to strain or to push. And one place that people strain is around their eyes. There are some people who meditate who are, who are so focused on the visual world that even their eyes are closed, they're still u engaging their eyes, like, like, like they're looking at your breathing trying to see, almost like, you know, it's such, such, such a strong kind of habit to look, to see. So even with the eyes closed, they're still trying to see. And that's fatiguing, that's tiring. So become aware of the tensions of the body and relax it. And as the body becomes more and more relaxed, it becomes um, more alert, unless you fall asleep. But the idea is that uh, with relaxation, it's easier for the system, the psychophysical system, to be aware, to be awake. With tension, the awareness is not really so useful. With, as we kind of soften, the awareness becomes more useful. If we are trying too much to be the doer, it's up to me, I'm responsible, how am I doing? Have I arrived yet? It actually interferes with this capacity to be lucidly aware, openly aware. The cost of 
cultivating, developing open awareness, the, cult, uh, the cost of developing lucid awareness or wakeful awareness is to put to rest self-preoccupation. Self-preoccupation is like having a dirty windshield. You can't really see clearly. So this relaxing, relaxing the tightness of the mind. If anyone, the Buddha said, if anyone speaking rightly could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling. It is of the concentration by mindfulness of breathing, then one could rightly say this. It's kind of a, you know, pretty, you know, holding up awareness of breathing, mindfulness of breathing and the concentration on it, the gathering together, the unification of the mind around breathing, holding up in high esteem and calling it a noble dwelling, a divine dwelling. The Tathagata means Buddha, the Buddha's dwelling. said this concentration by mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated is peaceful and sublime an ambrosial pleasant dwelling and it dis and it disperses and quells right on the spot unwholesome states whenever they arise. That gives it, you know, it's pretty effective. If you really develop this, something about, it doesn't happen automatically, but as we really develop this practice of anapanasati, of awareness, then it doesn't really allow unwholesome tendencies of the mind to remain. They kind of get settled, they get quelled. Just like in the last month of the hot season, when a mass of dust and dirt has swirled up, a great rain cloud out of, this, out of season disperses it and quells it on the spot. So too, concentration by mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated is peaceful and sublime. An ambrosial, ambrosial pleasant dwelling, it disperses and quells on the spot unwholesome states whenever they arise. So one of the points that we've been trying to make is that sati, 
which I prefer to translate as awareness, and I'll regularly, by habit, say mindfulness, that uh, it involves a process of unification, which in kind of modern circles in English-speaking world, sometimes is called integration. where all the different parts of us get integrated or made whole, unified, brought together. And it's a great gift that we give ourselves to not be divided against ourselves, to not be troubled by ourselves, bothered by what's going on. Because we, if we do, if we're troubled and bothered, we're actually setting up a separation, a, maybe a teeny battle. So what does it mean to be aware? What, 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 what kind of awareness, what kind of way of knowing has a function of bringing things together and holding them in a unified way? allowing ourselves to, in a sense, to become whole within it. Maybe an awareness which is broad enough, wide enough, that it can hold all of who we are. No part left out. But in that holding, or in that space that in which it can be, allowing, there's no war, there's no opposition. There's no conflict. No conflict with what's pleasant, what's unpleasant. No conflict with what is hard to see or easy to see. But just, somehow it's all held together, the uni unified. So I hope that as we go through this retreat and we go through the instructions on mindfulness of breathing, that uh, to some degree, you'll maybe you'll actually have some, more, some experience of what we're talking about here, that you can begin finding out what it means for you. I don't know what mindfulness is. I don't know what sati is. I don't know what it means for you to become unified or become whole. I don't know what you'll find but I'd have a tremendous amount of confidence that uh, your capacity for attention, for being present clearly so that you know you know, you know you're present, you're really here, that you have a capacity to be aware and present without any conflict, without being in any opposition to what is, that you can make your heart so big or so lucid, or so clear, so awake, that there's space for everything. There's breathing room for everything to be. So as we go through this uh, instructions and practices of mindfulness of breathing, I hope that you find lots of breathing room 
for yourself and your experience. <laughs>